Hi, and welcome back to the Life in Bomb City podcast. I'm Aaron Favor. Hi, and I'm Dr. Beth Rodriguez. And we are coming to you here live from the Social and Behavioral Sciences Studies Department here at Amarillo College on Washington Street Campus. Yes. Happy October. Man, yeah, fall. When did that happen? It's here. (laughs) This is the release date of the movie we were talking about the last time. Oh, that's right. The Sopranos Sopranos. uh, prequel. I did see that finally, and I was like, oh, that's what he was talking about, the, mm-hmm. the trailer for it. And I was like, okay, nice. Yeah, I had to re-subscribe uh, to uh, uh, one of the paid subscription services so that I could watch it tonight. Yeah. It's just going to be kind of the thing oh, that nice. I do tonight. Okay. I'm curious to see what, what that'll be like and if it you know holds the standard. Right. I'm sure. I mean, you got to be careful about keeping the expectations and managing them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not going to be the same. It won't be, but it, hopefully it will be close. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we always talk about sequels, right? Sequels are never, never the original is usually always better. Right. And, so. you know, we're always talking about, <clears throat> or one of the things that we talk about, one of the common themes uh, for us is uh, beyond what you mentioned uh, earlier about uh, unintended consequences, which yes. you're right. It is a trend that we talk about, but because it's so common. It is. Uh, but then there's, this other uh, thing that we we mentioned, which is um, the border, like whenever people have um, that creeping annexation of morality, where you know you go to a border and you kind of start to see it as arbitrary, mm-hmm. and then you try to, and then you move beyond it, and you're like, well, what did you call it? A foot in the door? Yeah, the foot in the door. Okay, it's like you do one. It's like, well, then I might as well just do this too. One thing that I'm looking forward to seeing is the uh, the deviant uh, behavior of of somebody like a soprano like in the early days, mm-hmm. and this was what was so interesting about one of the things, one of the many things that was interesting about the show, uh, the Sopranos when it was uh, still on TV, and if you watch it even now, is watching Tony figure out uh, how to rationalize some of the behavior that he's doing, whether it be violent behavior or other things that he's doing. Um, and he looks at some, I mean, he looks at like, you know, what you would consider to be your typical nonviolent law abiding citizen as just naive. And, and so for somebody like, you know, Christopher Moltisanti and in this, and in this one, it's Tony, who is a young version mm-hmm. played by his son, Michael, um, or whatever his last name is. Yes, Gandolfini. Thank you, Michael Gandolfini. Uh, And uh, I mean, in in the trailer, and I'm looking forward to seeing it, the the trailer says, you know, like he's, you know, trying to decide whether or not, you know, he feels a sense of guilt and remorse and Mm -hmm. his conscience is still there about whether or not he feels like it's okay to steal. And and somebody that's uh, above him says, you know, just tell yourself it's the last time you're ever going to do it. Ah, interesting. You know, so. Well, I love that you actually brought this up because, and then you brought up uh, your subscription that you're going to have to re, what was it? Subscribe to, Um, which brings us to kind of what we're talking about today. We're really going to like kind of delve into the idea of what technology has done, you know, where it's a streaming system, social media privacy, the things that, you know, people are able to look at because of all the technology that we're on. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and then, you know, we're going to look at all of that, right. We're going to kind of, I don't know, encompass the whole story of what's going on with technology. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a good thing. I mean, we all, we all use it. Right. We do. And I guess whenever, I guess the first foundation that we need to lay is that, you know, there's a long history of how people think and conceive of ideas of privacy and what actually, I mean, maybe by legal and societal standards are private matters at what times it's okay for that to be violated. And then uh, other things that maybe are more on the, the realm of constitutionally in kind of inviolate, maybe even at sometimes uh, impregnable or should be impregnable. And, there's um, an 1890 uh, case that uh, at the time Louis Brandeis wrote called The Right to Privacy. And that, 
And especially with the, by the way, the heartbeat bill in mm-hmm. Texas, we just in the Ranger just had a, an article that came out about that. Um, and you know, most, so much of that, the, with, from Roe v. Wade to, you know, present is revolves around privacy. Sure. And clearly there's other I things mean, that are attached OSHA, to it. Right. I mean that you can't ask anybody about their, tr- you really can't ask anything health questions. Right. You're not supposed to like, that's your private information. Like right. I shouldn't have to tell somebody that I have something wrong. Like I don't have to. Now, if it interferes with my work or something along those lines, then, you know, I can be asked why am I interfere? Like, why is it interfering with work? But I can't, someone can't look at me and say, Oh, you know, why were you at the doctor? You know, that's none of your business. And that's kind of like this idea, the privacy idea that comes into play here. Right. And from the beginning, it seems like that, that old Harvard Law Review article um, by Brandeis, uh, he is kind of articulating that, you know, he's, he and a colleague, by the way, um, are writing in support of um, their own, at that time, I think it was the tele, whatever the, the telephone is that yeah it was the early the precursor to the telephone was that where you have to it changed this yeah it changed the the civil war you Mm -hmm. know because the how fast people could communicate and get information back um but not a teleprompter that's not (laughs) that wasn't what it was um but uh it moves forward lewis brandeis ends up on the supreme court and in 1928 um there is a supreme court case called olmstead v us it's a prohibition case and uh, Roy Olmstead, probably the most successful bootlegger in American history, but not not as violent as someone like Al Capone, and therefore gets eclipsed in the American mind mm-hmm. uh, for historically anyway, uh, for the simple fact that you know, I mean, they busted Al Capone on his uh, taxes. They get uh, Roy Olmstead though um, off of a wiretap, oh. um, and it in, ends up implicating. He and all of his um, conspirers and the state of Washington had a wiretap law. The federal government went in, essentially violated the state's law, becomes a massive Supreme Court case. And uh, to this day, um, it holds the line of the old standard of privacy because they had party lines and the expectation, the subjective expectation of privacy on a phone call was so incredibly uh, weak. It was very weak. Mm-hmm. So, do uh, you remember in A River Runs Through It, the scene where Norm is talking to his future wife, asking her out on a date, and there was a woman on the switchboard that connects them? Yes. That woman would always stay on the phone and listen to what... Uh, what was going on? Yeah. yeah. I mean, they were the they were the people that knew what was going on. And <laughs> so, they, I mean, and your neighbor could do that too. I sure. mean, if they live two miles down the road you're on the country and they pick up the phone, they could always pick it up and just start talking and you would never even know it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that idea is something that is a problem for questions of our, is what, is what we're saying or what we're doing a private affair. Right. And so we move forward though, 40 years into the future, um, the Supreme Court, by the way, Louis Brandeis writes this scathing dissent um, and because he has this long history, mm-hmm. uh, assorted past, by the way, with uh, the Supreme Court decisions on what he's a majority and minority on and uh, what he dissents with. But his uh, his perspective on this remains fairly unchanged, and he thinks that it's a violation of not only someone's Fourth Amendment right, but their right to not... Um, to not incriminate themselves mm-hmm. and that it kind of messes with due process and, and due process standard due process standards in a way that it shouldn't. And so in 1967, there's a new court case that is the kind of the modern standard for what we consider to be privacy. And that's the cats V U S case. And uh, it's, first of all, it's fun to just say cats, but yeah. you do get to hear the Supreme court, even today in oral arguments, make statements about, uh, about Charles Katz and they'll just say the Katz case or the Katz decision. And they're talking about a standard and it's two pronged. The first thing is they want them to be able to demonstrate that they had a subjective expectation of privacy. And then the second part of the test is that that subjective expectation of privacy has to stand up to the scrutiny of society at largest standard of what is reasonable. 
So by the standards of the law, oftentimes it's all about reason and what's reasonable force, what's reasonable Mm -hmm. suspicion, what is reasonable, what is probable cause and all those other things. But for them, they're thinking about what is reasonable suspicion, or I'm sorry, reasonable um, in terms of expectations of privacy. So, I mean, expectations, I mean, they're, they're so subjective. Sure. It's a perception. I'm being able to understand how to manage those expectations is a problem we deal with today. And that's, I mean, that's where I kind of wanted to leave us right here because right. this is where our conversation really should really take off in terms of the foundations. Well, in my class, in my sociology class, I do um, an ethics and what's ethical, what's unethical. And these two cases that are brought up in the actual book for sociology, um, one of them, there is a researcher, right? And he is sitting at a restaurant. He is a wait staff. He's watching these people. All of a sudden, the restaurant is caught on fire. They uh, they find out it's arson. He has been watching, observing the whole thing. He has notes on everybody who's been in and out of it. So he could, and probably, you know, and ethically, what are you thinking? Like, maybe he should turn over his notes. But as a researcher, you are not supposed to, it's supposed to be anonymous, confidential. Anything that a research takes in should not be given to just anybody. Right. And so, you know, that's where this ethical, unethical idea comes in. So I have my students say, why is this ethical and why is it unethical? And, you know, sometimes it's hard for people to see why it is ethical, but it's the research part, right? The, the idea of privacy, like I've, this person who is watching you, observing you over and over, um, is taking notes and writing all this stuff down about you and it's private And, you know, we assume like if we go into a restaurant or we're going to work that nobody's just watching us and keeping tabs and everything along those lines. But this researcher was, and then the place burned down and the cops came to him off. Like we're telling him they're going to put him in jail. They didn't give her the notes. He never did. And they went to court and they said, well, that's research. And so it's like, oh my gosh, what do you do? And to a point it's like, you know, maybe you should turn over the notes, right? Because you probably know who did it. And then, you know, you could give them some hint. And so then, but it seemed that's the privacy, right? I mean, that's what we come down to is like, what is it? Like when, when does it violate that? Where, what, what is it can, you know, for every individual, your perception on now, maybe if somebody was hurt, it would have been an easier like decision. But since it was, nobody was actually hurt, like physically hurt, I'm sure they were financially hurt, but physically hurt, then maybe that he felt, you know, not as much like he had to give over the information. So, I mean, it's just another thing with privacy. Right. I mean, especially with things like bullying today. I mean, what is, maybe that's a jump as well. Probably a little bit of a jump because it's not really research. Um, On the other hand, people are scrutinizing other individuals and scrutiny, the scrutiny of research and, and, observations mm-hmm. I mean what is a valid uh, observation and is it I mean does it fall under the ethical premises of like you know scholarship expectations of ethics right um, is that so okay so tell me if you've like you just brought up scholarship so it just reminds me like anything that you have to apply for or you know maybe recruited for or anything along those lines you know that most people I'm sure you do but most people now if they're going to interview you they will look at your Facebook page. They're going to look at your social media. And I mean, is that, should you be able to do that? Or is that like a private life? You know, should that be separated? Like that's your private life. This is your work life. Should it be able to be separated? Like, should that be a way that we evaluate people? Um, And I mean, according to that social media, it's a free open platform. So anybody can look. Right. And they make that, fairly evident in, uh, in, you know, in the way that we post and how frivolously we go about posting things about our lives and, you know, the pictures that we share and, and how you can be swept up in pictures without even knowing, uh, the people that are in them. Uh, and, and with all the, but another thing that makes that such a big issue today is that, the all the different, uh, smart technologies 
that have been developed around that so that they can include identities mm-hmm. associated with things like photos and friends and networks and, you know, contact lists. And uh, I'm not certain that Facebook has any business knowing, you know, who in, who is in your contact list. On the other hand, you know, there are people that give those things willingly mm-hmm. all the time uh, just for the basic uh convenience of being able to tag them very, very quickly or um, being able to to recognize a certain individual and makes tagging easier and faster. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are all really hard questions. But hard. I mean, the standard is fairly simple, right? It's like, I mean, of course, if I put it out there, then somebody doesn't have to commit espionage to to find it. Yeah. I mean, it's out there. I mean, it's kind of like a phone in that instance mm-hmm. and a cell, a cell phone. If somebody's, you know, using a cell phone and transmitting in public space, then what is my legitimate expectation that that conversation is private or walking down a hallway over here and our, as we, as we see students do all the time, all the time. And, and myself, I mean, I, I'm myself included, uh, you know, sending a text message to, you know, my wife or, or so, you know what I mean? And Yet people will walk next to you and you don't ever know what, you know, they're accidentally looking at or, you know, watching or, and they, they can pick up on things without realizing it or recognizing it. Mm-hmm. And people are, people are, uh, very observant. They are. I'm, I'm nosy, <laughs> but I mean, that's just the idea is like we do. I think we, um, we have a higher expectation of privacy than we actually possibly have. Like we assume a lot of things are private um, or that we're only showing our friends or the person who is, you know, intended to get the message is the only one who's getting it. And I mean, when we really look at technology in general, it's, that's not what's happening. I mean, it's really, once it's out there, it's out there. Right. And it could be multiple people. Um, And you brought up bullying and I was, uh, we talk about this in my class all the time. And we talk about the idea of, you know, bullying's not new. Like this has been around since the beginning of time. That's just people do social comparison. A lot of times it's like to help your self-esteem. We do downward comparison. So we often think of the bad things that somebody else is doing. And if you do it internally, (laughs) it's not as bad. But as soon as you, you know, externalize all of this, it's, we call it bullying. And um, the only difference from now is the fact that cyberbullying is like tenfold, Right. Because usually if you had bullying, right, it was me and the kid that's bullying me and maybe two or three people who saw. Right. But now, you know, if you put something on Facebook or Snapchat and stick it on someone's story and you post it to all your people, who gets to see it? Everyone. And the just the amount of people that are exposed to that information now and the effect of all of the thought you know, it's the thought of the people that you are like, oh my gosh, everybody knows, everybody saw. It's just a uh, so much bigger magnitude. And, you know, I mean, that's just, I think that's one of the downsides, the unintended consequences of technology is, you know, I mean, we want information to be disseminated to people. We want it to be, because that's like, that's really cool. Like you have in your phone, in your hand, the ability to get so much information so quickly. But we also have the ability to give such negative, hurtful, awful things so at the magnitude and so quickly that, you know, it's, it's very painful to people. So, I mean, it's like, uh, like, what do we do? I mean, it's amazing. Technology is unbelievable, but at the same time, it's unbelievable. So. Right. And it's a really good point. I mean, the, I don't know what did they call that. Not just the cascading uh, impact of that, but the the exponential mm-hmm. factor that gets gets put into play yeah. uh, can do a tremendous amount of damage. Um, and I mean, those can be come in the form of of lawsuits as well. Sure, you know, so uh, putting damaging information out on somebody on purpose to damage their reputation, and them being able to show, well, this was why I was fired, was because this person intentionally put a photo of right. me on Facebook that somehow, you know, put me in a light that was unfavorable, particularly with regard, or made it look like a certain something was going on when there wasn't. Right. Um, there's all kinds of 
of ways to look at, um, I guess, and you know, I don't have, I'm not there yet with, uh, my kiddos being in a position where, you know, they're dealing with this, uh, constantly. Um, and I don't know, I don't know what that's going to look like when, you know, when they get old enough to have, have those things. Um, well, by that time, it's going to be completely different. Right. Because like we do Facebook. I mean, I don't know if you do, but that's like Facebook is more of our generation. It was my space. Facebook's the best, better version of this. But um, kids now, they that's not even where they are. They're in Snapchat now. And, you know, Snapchat, unless you save the picture, the picture's gone. Which, I mean, it's good and bad again. Because then, you know, it's like what... It's like that you, I know it's going to be gone. So the risk factor and the things that maybe I would take a little bit more time to think about doing, I don't because I'm like, uh, the the picture will disappear. But that's not, that's actually not true either because someone can save that picture. So, I mean, just the idea of Snapchat is great because I mean, to a point, um, but it does, I think it heightens the, the possibility that people are going to be posting things that they wouldn't if they had more time to think about it because they're having this idea that it's, Oh, it's not going to be there very long. Right. It's just going to go away. Um, but that's not the way it works, right? There's a lot of people who will save that. And now, you know what? Somebody has that picture. Somebody has that information. Somebody has that now. So, and it can be saved, you know, even though you delete whatever you delete, somebody else has it already. And so I, my kids, they do, um, my oldest has Snapchat and we, I'm, I'm on Snapchat too. And I follow his story to make sure that he's, and he knows. So, but I'm, you know, just to make sure that, you know, he's not posting anything that he shouldn't, or that was like, what, you know, why, why would you say this? Or why would you do this? Or, and, um, and I think that that's like my part, that's what I should be doing as a parent, right? Is right now this point, social media is a new adventure for them. And so we have to be there as a parent to, help them with this technology. The sad thing is, is they probably know so much more about the technology than I ever will. And, you know, that's another unintended consequence is that it is moving so quickly and they're in the midst of it in the constant change that parents are behind. And even if we were to learn something new every single day, we'll never catch up just because it's, they're in it and it's just happening constantly but I mean, and that's, that's great, but it's also not great. Right. I think that to some extent I've got to ask the question, why is it great? Why is it so important to share all of these things with the general public? And why do, why should we need their affirmation regarding anything? I mean, and not to say that the nineties were not a perfect time in history. Okay. I'm not like going back all oh, the good old nineties yeah. <laughs> or the eighties for that matter. Uh, but I mean, not, I mean, the, the big deal then was being able to get your own phone line, right. you know, that was the ability to have privacy had to do with having your own phone line. And that was the expectation was, you know, we're, we're trusting you with a certain amount of responsibility. We're going to pay a little bit extra on our phone bill, um, in order for you to have this extra line, don't abuse it. Um, and what does abuse look like? in that setting and how does it differ from the setting that we have today um, in which people are walking around with mini computers mm-hmm. um, that have eyes and ears and geolocation trackers. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's a real question that I think deserves a lot of social discourse. There's probably a lot that's out there. Mm-hmm. There is always. And I, the reason I think it's great is again, it's just, at their fingertips, they have the ability to know so much so quickly. Like the amount of information that's out there is, it's unbelievable. Like you could just be learning new things all the time. But there's a downside to that too, right? So we, we've talked about this too as well as that, you know, would we really be worrying about things that are happening in Florida, you know, unless it was posted through media of some sort. Like we're just getting that information so much quicker. Internet, everything is just being like, oh, this happened today and this happened. And so, I mean, at the same time, we are getting so much and it's 
most of the time when we look at news, right, they have higher ratings if they can have something that's controversial or sad or traumatic of some sort where people, you know, tune in to see what happened next. You know, if it's a happy story, people are like, oh, yeah, that's great. But then they're not tuning back in. They're going to find, you know, something that's like, oh, what happened next? And um, I mean, would we, you know, with that information, are, do we have higher levels of anxiety? Do we have higher levels of depression? Are we focused more on things outside of our environment, which we can control um, to the point where, you know, we feel kind of like this helplessness because it's like, well, oh my God, like my kids are going to get kidnapped. They're going to get eaten by an alligator. They're going to, um, you know, someone's going to throw acid in their face. I mean, just all these things that we hear all the time with, maybe we hadn't heard before, you know I mean? Because that type of information wasn't just in our hands. So it's like, ah, oh, you know, there's, I wish there was a, a healthy balance. Like we could shut off, like you could only hear about a couple of bad things a day and you couldn't, you know, you have to hear more positive than negative, but that's just not how the world works, especially yeah. with media. And it's not the kinds of stories that people want to share either. Um, if someone is, uh, trying to process grief, you know, whether it be from, I mean, I consider it to be a fairly arbitrary thing. And I know that that's fairly, that's, that's maybe unfair of me to say that because something like a high school breakup seems fairly arbitrary to me. You know, on the other hand, it's a major emotional, you know, uh, affair for the, for the people that are involved. Mm-hmm. And that, that's understandable. Right. But I mean, Tracking that, the ability to track somebody's emotional formation over time is a strange new occurrence and maybe gives uh, maybe certain types of uh, institutions, systems uh, that have more power um, over individuals a little too much information to be able to uh, make moves of manipulation. Mm -hmm. A good example of that would be and this is not a high school breakup, by the way. This is just a real-world example of what happened in, uh, in Aleppo, Syria, uh, about a decade ago um, when uh, the Syrian government started going door-to-door. And this was when um, the, the, the presidential candidate was asked, you know, uh, the, I think it was the independent, uh, one of the independent or libertarian uh, presidents, I can't remember his name, uh, uh, the candidate was asked, you know, what about Aleppo or something like that? And he was like, what's Aleppo? <laughs> he didn't know, <laughs> yeah. he didn't know what it was, but everybody in on, or not everybody, but many people that have, that were involved on and active on social media, Twitter, you know, um, all the, the different platforms that we have available at our fingertips, they knew what was going on and that the Syrian government was going house to house, essentially trying to just put down the rebellion, mm-hmm. you know, which is, on one hand, if you're the Syrian government, as the, and you're in a totalitarian regime, uh, essentially a you know a, a a monarchy that is a, di- a kind of a dynastic style you know mm-hmm. government, you know your their perspective on authority is very different, and in holding them to Western standards, I mean we could argue, and I think very validly, you know about the morality of what was going on. Uh, on the other hand, um, the that kind of attention being paid to the individual life and dignity of the individuals involved in those, um, what we perceive as happening, um, they would say things like, heard gunfire next door. I think they're moving closer. Or heard gunfire on my street. You know, and and as you could almost feel the encroachment mm-hmm. of what was going on based off of what the tw- what was going on on Twitter. So take that into perspective from maybe in an individual, you know, we don't maybe need to know when, you know, somebody is, uh, is leaving their house to go down the street and they might make an argument. Well, I need to make sure that people know, you know, just in case something happens, right. you know, um, or <laughs> I mean, have you watched, um, the day I met El Chapo on so. Netflix? Uh-uh. I don't even like mentioning his name on, on social media. So if you're a cartel member and you're listening at that, <laughs> wasn't out of disrespect, name. <laughs> but, uh, it is a title of a Netflix film and there's a, a scene in which one of the, uh, one of the ladies involved, um, in that, uh, 
adventure, if you will, uh, as, a, as a Mexican actress. And she took a photo of the uh, tail um, number of the plane that she was about to get on. And she didn't really say anything else outside of that. And I think it was cl- fairly obvious later on when, when people found out that she'd done it because if this is the last time you ever see me or if there's no any, way. here is the tail number of the mm-hmm. plane. So do with it whatever you need to do. Um, not that that might even do anything, uh, by right. the way, when you're dealing with somebody like that. But, um, I mean, I think that those being able to draw those lines of how the power can be used to people's benefit or against other sure. people in the case of like a high school person um, gaining uh, a, a trust in a relationship that is uh, not real or asymmetrical, mm-hmm. like a senior and a eighth grader or a senior and a a, f- a freshman, which I don't even think is may maybe not even be legal, but I, I it depends but, how old they are. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, but at the same time, that is a uh, isn't kind of an asymmetrical power mm-hmm. sharing relationship, and getting young people to understand that element of it is a really really difficult dimension sure. for I think probably anybody to really recognize. Mm-hmm. Is yeah. that would yeah. that be? I mean. We deal with that as adults and with things like Title IX. Yes, Mm -hmm. sure, sure. Yes, and I mean, that is always the the idea of the power struggle. Like if somebody actually has power over you, you know, is it a consent kind of thing? That's kind of what you're saying, right? Mm -hmm. But um, I'm so glad that you actually brought stuff up because I was, as you were, you know, talking about some of the things, it, you know, it just brought up the idea of like, you know, it can be very useful, you know, it can be very useful and we do use it, but then, you know, it can also be used against us. Um, like my husband will not let me post any pictures from vacation while we're on vacation. He's like, then people know we're not there. He's like, that is just basically saying, Hey, if you know where we live, we're not home, <laughs> go to our house and have a free for all. Cause nobody's there. He won't let me do that. But he also is a, he's a car guy. He will find stuff online he goes and meets these people, which like, I don't know who they are. He doesn't really know who they are. He's assuming that they are, you know, trustworthy and that this is what they're really doing. And he's done this so many times. It terrifies me every time. So what I have him do is as soon as he gets there, I have him take a picture of their driver of their license plate. I have to take a picture of the guy. And then I say, you know what, if I call you in five minutes and you don't answer the phone, I'm calling the cops. And he's like, bad. I'm like, I'm serious. Like, it's terrifying. You have a check to buy a car. And it's not usually like a $5,000 check. It's, I mean, you're buying a car. And these people, I don't know who this person is. You're meeting them in random places. Like, he'll drive places. And I'm, he's not even in Texas sometimes. And I'm like, you know, how do I know that you're safe? So I will track him and I'll call him and I'll be like, Oh, you know, how's it going? If you don't call me and you know, if I text him and I'm like, if you don't call me in the next five minutes, I'm calling the cops. Why, you know, why are you not answering? And then when he does, you know, he's like, I'm fine. I was test driving. But I think, you know, in that sense, it's like, you know, I do have that ability to know where he is and what's going on. But at the same time, so is it not just me? Like who else knows exactly where he is and what's going on? And that's kind of where we see this whole idea of privacy and, you know, what really is private. Right. And then you make a, an excellent point there um, to, to go back to the Aleppo, Syria incident, which is the more more of the extreme end, mm-hmm. but is is very crucial to what I think what you're saying. Does Twitter have an obligation to allow those um, messages to get out um, and then outrage the world um, and make them feel terrible about everything that's happening Mm -hmm. or do they have an obligation to turn it off um, in an effort to prevent the Syrian government from knowing who's where and still alive? Yeah. And that is a, that is another major question and element of, of that power and how to share it because it is, it does cut both ways. On one hand, people may know more about it, but if the the regime doesn't care, you know, they know how to silence those people and where they are. Sure. Um, At least they, if, if they have, you know, if they have uh, really uh, robust uh, communications. Well, I mean, it's, it's kind of a, I guess a a show of the times, I guess, you know, like when you were saying that one candidate was like, "Uh, what, what is that? And then we have like Donald Trump, Right. President Trump was on the social media 
And we constantly were hearing everything he had to say. You know, it's like unfiltered, immediate, you know, responses. And, you know, some people were just like, whoa, like, wait, but this is, that's kind of how the time was. It's like, that's the point of social media and Twitter. It's like, you put it out there and then you're like, oh, what did I just do? You know, and sometimes you're having to take it back or backtrack or delete the post altogether. And that's what we see a lot of people do. Um, And I don't know why people were so shocked to see him, you know, get on those types of um, social media, this types of, you know, grounds that everybody could see, because that's, that was kind of the point, right? Is that that's the point of what those are for. And so he wanted to make sure that he was also had a presence there. Um, I mean, even some of the things that he posted, I was just like, God, somebody, why is, why do they have somebody who is watching this? We need a social media advisor. Like, wait, you can't post that yet. Let me make sure it looks like that. But then that's not the point of social media, right? I mean, it is the immediate emotion, the response that comes with it. And that's what we usually see people do, which as parents, especially parents of teenagers, right? We realize that um, that's not what we want to happen. Like social media can't be the place where you just throw it out there because it could come back and bite your ass. Right. And that's the biggest issue with social media. Certainly. And that to kind of contrast that, I mean, what we have now um, with President Biden is we've seen the, the trend to go silent instead of answering questions, walking away, instead of uh, posting uh, extra information or information that is going to seem controversial. You don't, uh, it's just a quiet, like void that then gets filled with other people's speculation Mm -hmm. and and whatever their expectations from a previous time was. So is the cat out of the bag with regard to um, those people's expectations of their and the transformation of communication with their constituents or even using that as a tool for misinformation uh, with other countries or with, uh, with people in general. I mean, we see things that have happened and how fast the problem of, of having a constant and consistent message can be through mm-hmm. this COVID-19 pandemic uh, has, has really backfired. Sure. Um, as, as you just indicated, um, it may not be the place to just throw stuff out there uh, all the time. Right. Uh, and I don't know, it's a, it's a very complicated matter. <laughs> It is. And see, that's the, it's the unintended consequence of technology is, you know, we're, we would hope we would almost like have the expectation that when people post things, they're posting like factual information, not just stuff. And I mean, but that's, that's not what's happening, right? We have this immediate, it's almost like a response rather than a thought out thing. Um, in class the other day, we were talking about some of these things along this line. And um, I said, you know, I was asking the students, I said, what happened to, if you don't have anything to say at all, don't, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. And I said, and that's not the way it is anymore, especially on social media. If you feel like you have something to say, it doesn't matter if it's nice or not, you're just going to say it. And it's like, where, where did that happen? You know, when did the whole, you know, golden rule of treat people the way that you want them to treat you? Um, and that's, it's changed. And it's almost like the idea, like, you know, um, if you've ever seen any of the purges, most of the time, the people who do purge, who are part of it, they put mask on because they need to be somebody else. And that's kind of what it feels like now is what social media has allowed you to put this mask on and just kind of say whatever you want to. And which is crazy because then people don't expect the backlash from it. And then they feel threatened or like somebody is, you know, being mean to me. And it's like, well, I tell my kids all the time, don't hit somebody because you're going to get hit back. Like you can't assume that if you do what you do is not going to have a retaliation. So you have to think before you actually respond or act because there's going to be a reaction no matter what happens. That's just how life works. Okay. And not everybody will say, well, you hit me, but I'm not going to hit you back. Cause that's not how it's at work. That's just not how it works. Yeah. I mean, in an, in an ideal setting for someone who is, I mean, that you should turn the other cheek, right? That, yeah, I, I don't totally understand what you're saying. Uh, that's, 
there's a reason that's in the Bible as opposed to being something that we just kind of expect Mm -hmm. to happen all the time every day uh, is that um, it's just not typical human behavior. And by the way, if, I mean, if we were to take the modern uh, social media, uh, the opportunities and the tools and put it back into the time of the 1950s or 1960s, would that have been a positive thing for the civil rights movement or would that have been a negative thing for the civil rights movement or is it neither here or there or is it somewhere in the middle? I mean, we know that, for example, the war in Vietnam was dramatically changed by the use of media Mm -hmm. um, to, for example, uh, put the light of the Tet Offensive um, into a negative, negative cast and, as opposed to the uh, some of the the other things that we that we maybe look at, like the 2003 invasion of Iraq, where we have embedded troops and yeah. you know they're doing whatever. And I mean, is it right for us to be able to see what the what the troops are doing live? I mean, I this is one of those one of those know. questions, and it's only accelerated since then. And so if you put that into into that context, I mean, during that time period of the civil rights movement, the FBI had a had a program from 57 to 72 called COINTELPRO. Mm-hmm. Um, it has uh, been in a more dramatic light today um, as a kind of a, a reaction brought up by the Black Lives Matter um, protests and movements where they're rediscovering um, or maybe reframing uh, some of the uh, the heroes of that civil rights movement, um, including you know Malcolm X, and mm-hmm. uh, and we and we've we had those conversations in class all the time, right? Uh, and the way that the FBI was going about that, on one hand, they have a duty to protect the country and the homeland from foreign powers. Then we know that there are foreign powers in the country working to undermine the United States uh, form of government that are trying to use. Uh, groups of people and interests of people against the United States of America. The F- one of the roles of the FBI is not just a law enforcement body, but also a body that is a national institution, is to protect the sovereignty of the United States and its ability to make decisions. Well, how do you affect the United States of America and its ability to make decisions if not through the people and you know, manipulation mm-hmm. uh, of those individuals. We heard this recently with the, you know, the, the elections, right? But um, the 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 big thing for for them back then was, or one of the one of the issues, I suppose, was that it came out that the FBI was spying on Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, this is not a surprise. Martin Luther King was a major social leader at the time. It, you know, if you're the FBI, you're concerned with the matters of somebody like Martin Luther King. He didn't have a reasonable expectation of privacy to the extent that people thought he did. Um, And, you know, that's not me being critical of his uh, social beliefs um, or his political beliefs, um, but rather looking at the national interest perspective, you know, um, that people were going to infiltrate certain groups and elements of his uh, to make sure that he wasn't, he wasn't, uh, some type of a Trojan horse or doing something that he really shouldn't have been involved in. What ends up happening is it kind of reveals um, extramarital, you know, relationships. And then that gets used uh, to discredit Martin right. Luther King. And that becomes a whole different issue, right? Yeah, because so you that, have this that- infiltration and sabotage as opposed to just collecting in information mm-hmm. and intelligence. And um, I mean, what do you do? I mean, yeah, it's not, no, nothing will be perfect. Right. And but, I mean, that's the thing is like, when, when is it too far? Like, when did you step over the line? Is that something, I mean, is his, you know, what those decisions, did that really affect his movement and how, you know, it's like, like what information do you give people? You know, if we're going to give it all, then we really need to give it all. And it doesn't need to be, um, shaded or, you know, halfway, only telling one side of the story. Like if we're really looking at journalism and news and, you know, everything, if you're going to have the information, then, and we're going to use bits and parts, then you need to give the whole story, right? There's no bits and parts, right? We've seen um, the different, like, I, I just saw this, I was scrolling through, which I usually, 
I don't do very often, but I do enough, you know, usually to get people's birthdays. Cause I'm like, oh, I think someone's birthday is today. Oh, that's really is. what social media yeah. should be about is just making sure we celebrate other that's people's what, That's kind of births. my thing. I forget. I'm like, oh gosh, I missed so-and-so's birthday. But, um, I was just scrolling through and it was like, it showed a picture of a lion. It was a lioness actually holding her cub. Okay. But she has a, you know, in her mouth cause that's how they carry him. And one side, it looks like it's eating the cup and then they turn it around and really the heads on the other side. And it says, you know, what media shows you and what the reality is. And it's like, you know, why should that be the way it is? And that's, it shouldn't be right. I mean, the idea of journalism and it's very basic is to give information, you know, all the information, all the facts to get as much information about everything and let you decide like, and where did the letting the people decide thing go away? Uh, well, I mean, at what point did we ever decide that people were capable of of sorting through all that information and arriving at a conclusion that's not only reasonable um, by by other people's standards or maybe by and, and and how do we rate that? I mean, that's kind of where the free market comes in mm-hmm. in journalism is that we have we have the invisible hand that's always filling the void of the of whatever the the people want and and this is a major aspect of it and my classes we talk about this a lot mm-hmm. is you know how much time do we actually have to devote to critical thinking about the world around us um and how much as as we've discussed um how much should i care about a hurricane hitting new orleans not to say that I shouldn't care, of course I should care, but how much should I care? Because right. there's only time? so many things. Yeah, I mean, there's only so many things that I can deal with. If I'm a if I'm a, a husband and a father, and um, I'm working working a full time job, and all of my emotional energy, all of my physical energy, all of my uh, my my intellectual energy are going to other things. As a student, as a teacher, mm-hmm. I mean, do what do I have left to give at that point? Do you want my money now too? Right. I mean, at what point do I just let it go and just say, you know what? They're going to have to figure that out. We have more. We have our own problems right here. Right. And we need to be dealing with those. You know, uh, that's that's a major question in journalism. I think for for our generation um, is finding those things because I'm certain that in the past you would find out that there was a hurricane, but it happened two months ago. And while that's awful and terrible and you can, we, we should be always be hoping and praying and, you know, trying to figure out how to help other people, maybe a good response to that, a healthy way to respond to that would be, would be to know that it happened um, but it's not happening as we speak, mm-hmm. and people getting on and and doing a a, a live stream of it uh, the whole time, so that we can see the trees, you know, pushing the houses off into the into the rivers and flash floods or yeah. or whatever the case. I mean, it, it reminds me of that that childhood song, you know, that we always uh, we may have uh, been exposed to. You know, be careful, little eyes, what you what you see. And be careful, little ears, what you hear. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not so much a is. It's not just a spiritual thing. It's also this. Hey, I mean, we have we're in our own orbit, and we can control the things that we can control. We can't control the things that we can't control. Mm-hmm. But we are in a society and in a time when we believe, for some reason, I don't know where we got this idea that we can control everything, everything, or and we it, should be able to. Right. So, I mean, just thinking about everything and all the problems and all the stuff that's happening. It's a very anxiety provoking, stressful way to live your life, right? I also have another lesson we do in our class over stress. And, you know, I have everybody write down, I mean, all the class, like they're in their own groups and they're coming up with the top three, top five things that stress them out. And then we write them on the board and they're very, almost exactly the same for everybody. And I'm, as we sit and I'm like, okay, now I need you to tell me why they stress you out. And when we really look at it, it comes down to, it's not these things that stress you out. It's the way that you respond to them. So this real stressor is you. And, you know, and then we talk about what it does to the body. And I mean, I end the lesson by basically telling them you need to prioritize. 
You need to figure out what's important to you and control the things you can control. Like I can't control how people, other people drive. I can't. I mean, there's nothing I can do about that, but I can control my response to it when somebody makes me mad, right? Instead of, you know, getting angry and like running into him or, you know, flipping out, getting out of the car, whatever, you know, my response can be, you know, I can laugh it off and say, you know what? I pulled in front of someone before. (laughs) I get it. Like, Hey, have a good day. You know, you get to choose that response. That's what you can control. So therefore, instead of trying to assume that now that's a bad driver, so I should be stressed about it. And oh my, why? Like, why would you do that? And that's kind of what this, what you're talking about is like, it, those things are stressful and anxiety provoking. Like, oh my gosh, like, what are those people going to do? Where are they going to sleep? What are, I mean, and it can cause a lot of extra pressure and stress and anxiety that, you know what, there's really not a lot you personally can do about that. But what you can do is control what you can control. And that's you possibly maybe a little bit of control over your kids, but you can really control how you respond to the things rather than, you know, you can't fix it all. Right. Uh, And so what do we say? uh, What do we say to institutions that uh, attempt to change, to change it all? I mean, for example, um, the Department of Justice um, in this recent you know, asserting control or attempting to assert control over the state's decisions to um, to make a make a a ruling or uh, to have a legislative body, um, which is the process. You know, right. electing people and then them making decisions. Um, as controversial as it might be to somebody from New York, um, and money can pour into the state of Texas to create you know a context of bad press or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the case may be that might prompt the Department of Justice based on the, the pressures that are being asserted in different committees and in different lobbies and all the interests that go into these things um, to make a show of it yeah. um, and to try to figure out how to you know when in reality the the real the real methods of control and. Uh, maybe I'm showing my age here, you know, by <laughs> saying, um, by referencing something that Justice Scalia, you know, talked about with regard to privacy. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's really important to to note, especially in regard to things like people that uh, people that are that are deeply concerned about something like the heartbeat bill mm-hmm. in Texas. Um, that you know, this was. Uh, a, a an expectation that was created, probably with good intentions, um, that has kind of metastasized into a uh, what looks like a right, mm-hmm. and the way that we describe rights and liberties, civil liberties are guaranteed, and you cannot have them removed without due process. Right. A civil right, though, is something that evolves over time. Mm -hmm. So a civil right is not maybe the right way to frame that issue. And maybe it was a part of the culture of the 1960s to say from the court's perspective that they overreached a little bit. Mm -hmm. And in 1973, overreached again. And I I mean, this is something I'm not taking an... a position on, right. but rather just kind of discussing the way that uh, Scalia talked about mm-hmm. it uh, when he was alive. Uh, something that he argued was, you know, that that was never decided by the American people. And in a republic, it's the people that determine what the laws are, not a court. Right. And that's fascinating mm-hmm. because if, if you've never thought about that from the national legislative level and from the level of the presidency, that the Supreme Court's job is not to rule on these types of things and change societal norms, but rather to judge uh, a range of issues. And even some of those are are controversial because they've been... Some people look at the Marshall Court, the very first one, as being Mm -hmm. an activist court. You know, and I mean, I don't don't know what the answer is. It's just just more to think about. It's, you know, it's always, it seems like things should be, you know, it's very simple, 
but it's because of the human emotion and everything else that goes into it and different perceptions and experiences that make things more complex. And so even though, you know, when, when we can look at an issue and say, okay, this is it, there's always a, but what if, but what if, but what, you know, and it's, oh, and that's when it makes it, you know, a lot harder for people to jump on board. If that makes any sense. It's like a, you know, I mean, it's, just the more information, the more perception, the more experience that whatever's happening, it just makes it a lot more complex than this easy idea of this is what we want. And this is how we should get there. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I can't, I I cannot believe that, that uh, you and I are continuing to talk about, I think we could, you know, as we always say, we could always uh, continue talking about this. (laughs) We could Uh, have another show. I've got, yeah, I've got this thing in front of me, and I just now saw um, Ernest Hemingway. That's it's not really. Oh, it was just the referencing the fact that the FBI had um, had files and dossiers on uh, John Steinbeck, Ernest Hemingway, Charlie Chaplin, Marlon Brando, Muhammad Ali, okay. Albert Einstein. And why I why mean, do they have them? Because they were influential people. I mean, it's like you know, what could this one person who is very influential do? Because they have power. Yeah. And now we have influencers, not necessarily even uh, yeah. movement leaders, but influencers, as we saw with the uh, the White House uh, bringing in this uh, TikTok influencer. Probably, yeah. Um, and of course, on TikTok, it makes sense. But in other areas, it doesn't, nobody knows who this person right. is because he's a TikTok influencer. Uh-huh. And uh, the term influencer is a, is a, is a whole, it deserves its own podcast, I think. I, yeah, probably. Uh, because we could go from the micro all the way up to the, to the people that are able to, you know, know all the algorithms and can yeah. generate a million shares or I don't know, that seems like a lot. And but I don't probably, know. I, don't I know, think it probably, probably is done. Yeah, it probably has been done quite That's a few times. It's just crazy. This, I mean, I, I think that, you know, we, uh, we just, the biggest difference, um, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that, um, I'm sorry that I, you know, that I'm, I'm not against technology and I don't understand all of it. I mean, even you're more technology. Um, I don't know. You have more knowledge in it and than I do in the first place, but I do, I see, you know, the, um, you know, how it can be helpful. And I also see the, you know, the downside. So we see that, you know, the very ben- the benefits and we don't want to stifle, um, you know, our kids, the public, the, but at the same time, maybe we don't want them to have all that information. We don't want them to be able to see all of it all the time, whenever they want, nonstop. You know, it's like ugh, anything, I think I'm, Anything in moderation is okay, but when we, that's the excess, that's when it becomes an issue where we're starting to see major problems for people, for kids, for societies, for countries, for political parties, for movements. I think that's when, you know, we get to the excess that we're starting to see the downside. It's really well said, and I totally endorse what you just uh, what you just commented on, which is typical of me at the end of an episode because I know <laughs> that both of us are looking at the clock, going, "Okay, our listeners start tuning out about an hour in." Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and yet I can't help but want to just make one little addition about sure. the the TV show Naked and Afraid. Yeah, one of the things that's so alluring about the experiences that they're having isn't the fact that they're out in the wild; it's the fact that they're that they've been. I mean, it's almost like the physical representation of them being naked is just not even, it's not something that's interesting as much as it is they've been, um, everything that, that is comfortable has been taken away. So even the things that from the very beginning uh, we say make people feel ashamed to be around each other without clothes is taken away. So even the most basic comforts, mm-hmm. um, not to mention water and and food and, and the necessities, the, the necessities. I mean, the things that we take for granted every day. So being able to focus on one specific thing for an entire day. So for instance, you see every now and then you'll see somebody work to build a fire mm-hmm. for 12 hours. And it is frustrating to watch. On the other hand, you kind of envy them in a way because you know that they're, all of their faculties, their, their, their mental faculties and their intellectual faculties are being put to the, maybe to the purpose 
that they were originally designed for, Mm -hmm. which was to survive. And uh, I think that people wanting to get back to that is something that's really cool. And at the same time, you know, for instance, when we look at our phones, it's not really something that maybe human beings were built. Yeah. I mean, we're going to have to learn how to deal with it. It's not going away. Right. And I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm with you. I don't, I'm not anti, I'm not a Luddite and I don't want to be. Yeah. But, uh, but at the same time, the, the truth is that, you know, uh, to some extent we're going to have to figure out how to, how to find a balance, as you said, balance. and, uh, find out when it's appropriate and healthy to concentrate on something as simple as building a fire. If mm-hmm. it's even only for an hour or 30 minutes and keeping yeah. it going and learning the basic tool of, you know, keeping oneself warm yeah. using a fire as opposed to, you know, doing that, letting the gas, you know, turning on the gas, lighten it up as fast as possible, getting that fix. And then we can have the aesthetic of the fire so that we can feel like we've got a fire good, mm-hmm. but it's not really doing, you know, it's not the, the, same. It's not the same. So anyway, that's just yeah. more of our, you know, food for thought, <laughs> but it has been one hour. I can't believe it, it but really fast. yeah, always thank you so much. And, uh, for listening, everyone, uh, we're looking forward to getting to visit with y'all again. Yeah. Have a great weekend. Have a wonderful weekend. It is, uh, it's going to be, it's going to be fall break before we know it. Yep. So y'all take care. And, uh, oh, is this, is this the first day of fall or is that, was that back? I don't know. I just know it's the first day of October. <laughs> I know it's the first day of October. And, and in addition, I think it's uh, kind of cold, it which is just chilly. makes me think fall. So sure it is. anyway, all right. Well, happy autumn, everyone. Bye. Bye.